0: I'm hearing good things about the pageant practice. I'm excited to hear it, kids. I want to do a quick review of, of where we've gone or, or the ground that we've covered in uh, this series that we're calling Ancient Christmas. That's all rooted in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, 15, the very first promise we see after the fall. You probably have the verse memorized by now, but in Genesis three, fifteen. God tells the serpent, because you have done this, you will crawl. And then he says this, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And and he will bruise your heel and he will crush your head. So what we've been doing is we've been examining this promise that God would send someone, a seed of the woman, to accomplish the overthrow of the great dragon's dominion over all things. And last week we looked at, and if you have your Bibles, just turn here real quickly. This won't be on the slides. But last, last week we looked at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 9, and we saw this uh, this New Testament unfolding or explanation of Genesis 315, and that is no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Well, let me back up. Verse eight, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so we, we see here what the seeds, what the shape of the seeds that God talked about in Genesis 3, uh, 3.15 are going to be there are going to be those who are born of the devil and there are going to be those who are born of Jesus Christ and we said last week that we are all born of the devil but only some of us through God's unmerited grace are born again into Jesus Christ and so the enmity that God promised in Genesis 3:15 we saw this the very first week we looked at the passage promises that he would cause some to be born again out of the family of the dark one and into the glorious light of Jesus Christ. And the enmity we see is the enmity between these two groups of people. And then we said that Jesus repeatedly says in his gospels, he just wants it clearly known the world will hate you because of me. And then we saw in, in Ephesians 6, where, where Paul says, Now let's be careful, let's be thoughtful. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and, and and powers, and the kingdom of darkness. And then I said, "Well, so what's the what's the basic strategy? How do we how do we move forward?" And, and we're going to look at a lot at that today in in Revelation 12. But then I took you to Second Timothy, chapter two, and I said, I read. Uh, The Lord's verse 24 and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And something very interesting happened as I uh, started explaining that I said our our war is, uh, God, the world's going to hate us, but we shouldn't hate the world. And then I, I said we should hate those who have been ensnared. And I, I meant to say we should hate the one who has ensnared, right? That, I caught that uh, uh, yesterday. Someone who actually is ensnared by the devil told me that. And they told me that because I think, This is the trap, right? The trap, the the great accuser of the brothers. But they were right. I I misspoke. The the, the idea is is that, yes, the, the world will accuse. They will fight. They will hurl insults. We do not wrestle that way. We are patient and kind. And so right now, right now in this very church, we're experiencing a battle. That's incredible to me. You know they always say, don't pray for patience. You know, I'm kind of wondering, like, should I preach on spiritual warfare? It's it's been an incredibly tumultuous and difficult week, and even right now, this battle is happening. This battle is taking place, even right now. It's incredible to me. So we've got to lean in and say, okay, okay, this battle is not against flesh and blood. This battle isn't even about me. This battle is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This battle is about the great Satan, the serpent. And so now, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation, chapter 12, verse 1 through 5. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman... "...clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns... And on his heads, seven diadems, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God. And to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So I want to I want to point this beautiful thing out that's apparent in verse one, and that is this: a great ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, a great ascent. Has taken place. Verse 1 shows us a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. In short, this woman is glorious. She is clothed with the sun itself, and the moon. Is a kind of mirror of the sun. And so this idea that this, the moon is beneath her feet. This woman is so radiant. She is clothed with the sun. And, and the moon is almost kind of a footstool. If you will. And, and, and she has a crown. And the crown are the, the 12 stars. The tribes of Israel are these jewels in her crown. So this woman presented in Revelation twelve one Is the church. This is the, This is the Old Testament people of God who were brought through thousands of years of difficulty to get to the point where they could deliver Jesus Christ into the world and this is a great ascent like this is this is a huge promotion in the video game world this is like massive leveling up this is cheat code leveling up like this is this is not just i 'm slightly better this is i 'm profoundly better this woman appeared here is not like the woman we see in the old testament starting all the way back with the woman we see in genesis three fifteen, that woman is not radiant that woman is not glorious that woman is deceived and broken and naked and ashamed she's not clothed with the sun She's, she is not in a good state at all. And I just want to walk you through a kind of biblical theology of the various types of women that are re- represented as the church in the Old Testament. And I want to be super clear, this is not. Uh, the Bible chooses to represent the, the church as a bride wife. And so I'm going to walk you through like a biblical theology of the women that we see in the Old Testament. But this is most uh, certainly not anti-woman. This is the representative of all of us. And and you're going to see that this isn't a woman thing. This is an all of us thing. But but there is this biblical theology, this shape of of what a woman, of of what God's people fashioned as a woman appear to be over and over and again. And you see the deceived woman. You know, (laughs) she is not dressed in glory. She's not really even dressed. She's by her appetites. She's been deceived by the devil. And then you see the low faith pragmatist woman. I'm just going to jump through a few of them. You see Sarah. Sarah is the woman of the promise. Sarah is the woman of the promise of Eve, right? She's she's sort of the next high point on this mountain range of biblical theology. And you've got Sarah, who's supposed to be the mother of the chosen one. But Sarah's not she ain't the bride. Like, she's not as glorious as this woman. Sarah's actually got super low faith, and she actually, basically, if it was left to her, would have ruined the whole thing, right? She's a what I call a low-faith pragmatist. Rather than trust God with his promise, she knows that, she's, that Abraham's supposed to be the father of, a, of, of the nations. She can't have children, and so she's like, here, take Hagar. And I, I've, really, I've really thought a lot about that, you know. When the church has low faith, we start fake religions. Like, whether that's liberalism or something else. Like, when we have low faith, and we're, but we're trying to... We're still trying to exist, but we don't believe God's word anymore. We start all these artificial fake brides. And then you've got the, um, the dignity over dependency kind of lady. Um, I think... It, it, this, this is very interesting. There's a story in Second Samuel 6. The ark of the Lord is returned... And David, if you remember, is so overjoyed that he starts dancing and and he comes all the way down to his linen ephod and he 's dancing in joy of the Lord and then his wife, Michael, sees him and despises him and essentially criticizes David for being so uh, buoyant and joyful and unkinglike and, and and you see that level of that, that level of faith or that cynicism. All throughout the Old Testament, you see these people. Kind of like the, the option is: I could believe God and trust God, but instead, I'm going to trust in my designs. I'm going to trust in my power. And so, if you ever read through First and Second Chronicles, it's First and Second Kings. Keep at it; you can do it. First of all, there's like a few places where Bible reading plans go to die, and and uh, sometimes that's one of them. But if you ever read through that, one of the things you'll see is, is that these kings, they could have just trusted God, but instead they keep forming alliances with other people. And so you've got this, this vision of the, the Old Testament church that's this, uh, I prefer to be political and dignified over dependent and worshipful. And then, of course, the most scathing, Max was, Max was telling me about this. He's been reading about this lately. The most scathing picture of the church in the, New Testament, or the Old Testament is just the harlot. And there are many passages that reference the Old Testament people of God being unfaithful and committing what amounts to spiritual adultery. Jeremiah 2, I do want to read this verse to you. Jeremiah 2, 12. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And then in verse twenty it says, For long ago I broke your yoke, and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. So I, I need you to walk I need you to get the whiplash that I got when I read Revelation 12.1 and this beautiful woman is presented as the mother, the mother bride. And, 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 but but, but you, know, you know the Old Testament. You're like, whoa, hold on a second. I mean, this is like extreme makeover to a whole different level. Like now she's radiant? Uh, how, how, what has just happened? What has just happened that makes this bride? What kind of ascent is this? What kind of level up is this? Now, super personal. I might not have done the best job describing each one of those women, but I wonder if you recognized yourself in those lists. You know, the uh, deceived woman, the woman deceived by her desires, or uh, the devil, um, the, the pragmatic one who, like, really just won't trust God but just keeps trying to manufacture something else, the, the one who disdains weakness, uh, the weakness of worship and prefers the human strength and dignity, um, the one who is spiritually unfaithful and who has this amazing husband bride, uh, husband God but but forsakes him and chooses to drink in broken sister instead. And I, I just I hope through the power of the Holy Spirit you would recognize yourself there. I recognize myself there. And so it's not just some kind of... Uh, you know, theological quirk to say, here's this woman in the Old Testament over and over and over again looking terrible, and now she's looking beautiful. This should be of great personal interest to you. Because what what are you going to do with the, the self image of the realization that you are unfaithful and that you, you are overly pragmatic? And you're, you know, like, what, what are you going to do with all that? Well, that's why I'm bringing this text to you. So I, I, I want you to see. That just as the church has a great ascent, so its members have a great ascent. And, and the question becomes, well, how does this great ascent take place? Well, look at verse 5 of our text, Revelation 12. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So how has this great ascent taken place? Why is this woman so splendorous when we know she really hasn't ever been that way? She has ascended to such heights because through the incarnation, God has descended to such depths. So the great ascent of the church we see in Revelation 12 has come about because of a great descent. God has come and taken on flesh and become a child. So condescendingly small, so humble that He was He he chose to be born by this highly imperfect bridewife that I described. The great ascent of the church, the weight, the reason she is beautiful is because God became ugly. The reason she is glorious is because God became gritty. The reason she is as big as she is, is because God became small. The great ascent of the church, and therefore the great ascent of the Christian, is made possible by the great descent of God. Now... The higher view you have of humanity, the lower view you'll have of the incarnation. It is entirely possible, now, it's entirely possible to miss the miracle of the incarnation simply because you have too high a view of what a man or a woman is. <laughs> now, I don't think you would ever be this explicit, but you might think yes, God became a man. He was born into this world and became a person just like me, and lucky him because I'm awesome. I don't think you'd ever think it that hard, but if you have uh, an artificially high view of humanity, the incarnation will not be marvelous to you. And so C.S. Lewis encourages us to think about slugs. Uh, He says it this way. The second person in God, the Son, became human himself, was born into the world, as an actual man, a real man of a particular height with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that, a baby, and before that, a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, Think of how you would like to become a slug or a crab. So so how does the great ascent of the bride occur? It's because of the great descent of the Son of God. It's, It's the great condescension, the incarnation of Jesus. And so really, the incarnation is just a picture of what theologians call the glorious exchange. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or Lewis puts it famously, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Now, I, I am not going to reinvent the language around this topic. Uh, the great exchange is a well-known phrase and has been used for a long time, and I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. But I, I, I will say this. I would like to lodge a minor complaint into your head. I don't think, we need, I think we need to be careful to not imagine this being a one-for-one exchange. This isn't a kind of teeter-totter situation where if Jesus is just slightly heavier than us, all right, lock in me, like, get back to the playground here. Okay, we're on the teeter-totter. This isn't a teeter-totter situation where because Jesus, like, Jesus is slightly heavier than us, and as long as he is low, we can stay high. That's, I don't want the great exchange to mean that, because that's not what it means. Here's what I think I would like you to think about. Jesus is of much, much, much greater weight than us, so that when he plummets to earth, into our situation, into our humanity, he doesn't just lift us, he launches us into a new orbit, into a new state of being. The great exchange is not Jesus's goodness in exchange for our badness it is the eternal weight of glory come to earth throwing up his chosen ones into the heavens as we see the church in revelation chapter 12 verse 1 and if you need this in bridal imagery ephesians 5 six, twenty-six 26 and 27 is there for you he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so this is great news for the church. But this is great news for you. Because if you recognize yourself in any of those lists of Old Testament unfaithfulness... Then rejoice. Jesus has come. And he plummets down onto his side of the teeter totter. It is not a one for one exchange. And he launches you up into glory and splendor and holiness. And you are there. And you're just there, right? Jude would say it this way in verse 24 He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And that's what we see this woman as in verse one presented with great joy in splendor, blameless because God has come. Now practically that's amazing and beautiful but I have some bad news for you. I think it's good news, but it feels bad. It is so common for God to deliver his people out of bondage and in to battle. It is so common for God to save his people and then send them into a struggle. We have been lifted. We have been launched. We're part of this Beautiful woman we see in revelation twelve one, but there is an enemy there is an enemy, and all I can say, like just real quickly, uh, one thing I would want to say is i'm so glad that I fight this fight as one who is blameless before him and not broken, like if I have to fight the fight, i'm so glad. I'm fighting it with his favor. And I am fighting it with his favor. I am. Through no merit of my own, through nothing I deserve, but simply God's unmerited favor. We are brought out of spiritual bondage and into a battle. That's the unfortunate reality. I don't think it's unfortunate because God did it. I want to be careful. It feels unfortunate. But this is where we are. We are the launched woman in space. Glorious, clothed with the sun, the moon on our feet. And we've also got a dragon trying to eat us. Yeah, that's the way it goes. This is where we are, as my son says. Without question, without question, the best state motto of any state in the United States is Kansas. And it's per aspera ad astra. It's the most gospel-y state motto ever. And it's simply this. Through hardship to the stars. Through hardship to the stars. How is God working in us, working with us, accomplishing his purpose? He causes us to be engaged in a struggle and then to the stars. Lewis is the master of this particular issue. Lewis is... Uniquely good on the incarnation. And he talks about this pattern of through hardship to the stars. And he talks about it through the lens of the incarnation. And he says this, in this descent and reascent, everyone will recognize a familiar pattern. A thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, deathlike. He's talking about the seed. It must fall to the ground, thence the new life reascends. He then says, it is the pattern of all animal generation too. There is descent from the full and perfect organism into the sperm and ovum. And, you know, I'd never thought about the biological. I thought about the the, the, uh, the vegetable, but I'd never thought about this, the, the, you know, Mammalian reproduction, or however we're want to talk about it. This, this idea that even when we attempt to bring new life into the world, it is this, is this really blessed me. The smallest, weakest, most vulnerable iteration of me is what brings life into the world. It's the most improbable version of me. It's, it's technically me. It's got all my DNA and all that. But it's like the most improbable, weak, vulnerable version of me. So Lewis is just talking about this through this struggle to the stars. And he's saying, that's what we see in vegetables and and seeds. And that's what we see in sperm and egg. And he says, in the dark womb, a life at first inferior in kind to that of the species, which is being reproduced. Then the slow ascent to a living, conscious baby and fully an adult. And then he says, death and rebirth go down to go up. Death and rebirth go down to go up. It is a key principle. Through this bottleneck, he calls it, this belittlement, the high road nearly always lies. The doctrine of the incarnation, if accepted, puts this principle even more emphatically at the center. And he says this, the pattern is there in nature because it was first there in God. And so what we're saying is that Our ascent into splendorousness is because of God's descent into creatureliness. creatureliness. And that not only has he called us up into that, but then he's called us into a battle. A battle within and a battle without. To engage head on with weakness. And in weakness, see strength emerge to engage head on with death and in death see life emerge that's the 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 the, the, the ascent and descent is now our way of life it was the way of god's life and now it is the way our way of life and i just want to leave you with some promises we see especially in verses uh uh 5 and 6 of revelation 12 three promises And if you were with me on Friday night at the college thing, you've heard this part. Verse five, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Three promises. Number one, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child, that the dragon sought to devour, is caught up to God and to his throne. Promise number one, the child king is on his throne. God is sovereign. He is over all things. He is entirely in charge. He is ruling and reigning over all things. This is helpful to know in the midst of a struggle. This is helpful to know. It's one thing to joke about straw wrappers hurling across I-35. If you weren't here, you won't get that. But there, there, there is a God's sovereignty over straw wrappers. But it's another thing to face a battle head on and say, even in this moment, God is entirely in control of all the various pieces that are moving about. And he knows what he's doing. And number two. It says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. The church is exactly where she needs to be. When you are fighting, it will feel to you as if you are fleeing or falling or failing. You will be in the place prepared for you by God. The woman is engaged in a great cosmic struggle. The dragon is legitimately frightening. She flees, and where does she wind up when she flees? In a place prepared by God. When you fight, when you struggle, when you die to self, wherever you are, it's where he wants you to be. Because the king is on the throne. And number three, there is a feast in the wilderness. You know, we've talked a go about scoffers and and there's a kind of scoffer who who will like throw things back at God's people when they're suffering and struggling. And and in Psalm 78 there's a scoffer that says to David, "Can God prepare a banquet in the wilderness?" Like like you're fleeing, you're fleeing, you're afraid, you're scared, you flee into the desert. Is there what is there going to be a banquet in the in the wilderness? That's actually what this promises in Revelation 12:6. She flees into the wilderness to a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. Is there a feast in the wilderness? Yeah, (laughs) there is. Because God's there and he's got it prepared. And even in this most improbable place of suffering and hardship, God will nourish his people. God will nourish his church and take care of them. So when I am facing a battle head on and I'm worried about all the varied consequences, I need to be reminding God myself of three things well four things because i am bought in christ i am not the haggard sinner that i really ought to be considered but i am made righteous in jesus and as such he regards me in a way that is completely wonderful and unfair second thing his sovereignty is for me because he is for me he's entirely in charge of everything when I fall, when I go, where I wind up, I'm exactly where I need to be. God is sovereign over me, and if I flee into the wilderness, God's there. It's prepared by him. And number three, I often, or number four, I worry. You know, I worry. Like if this happens, then this happens, and if that happens, then this happens. And if I take this stand, then that's going to cost me here. I'm going to fall here. I'm going to lose this, and I'm going to gain this. All It's just done with all of that crazy calculation. If I wind up in the wilderness, there'll be a feast there for me. I won't simply survive. I will thrive. I will be nourished. Wherever God takes me, he will nourish me. So we do have a battle to fight. Wish we didn't. But this battle has already been secured by our Savior. We're fighting this battle so that we can be more like him and know him better. There's a song I heard the other day, and it's been the line has been super helpful, and it just said, "The load you're carrying won't break your soul. It's just making it stronger, so it can hold all the good things that God is coming. God is God is coming. God is bringing in Christ. This pattern of descent and ascent is the pattern of God. And I want to end with a poem that I I have uh, posted on my wall right in front of my desk super simple but it has this pattern in it light after darkness gain after loss strength after weakness crown after cross sweet after bitter hope after fears home after wandering praise after tears sheaves after sowing, sun after rain Sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. Let me pray. Lord God, we praise your name that we are betrothed, loved, we belong, we are yours, and that all things are your ours in you. And so as we understand that we are, in some respects, still caught up in this enmity, which God himself promised as a blessing in Genesis 3.15, God, let us lean heavily on these promises. You're on your throne. We will be where we need to be. And where we are, you will prepare a feast before us, for us, even in the presence of our enemies. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Please stand with us.